to invite you to turn over in your in your Bible, uh, in your bulletin, it's actually written there, or you can use your Bible. Uh, over on page three, you'll find our our passage for this morning uh, and the outline for our for our message, taken from the book of Hosea, chapter eleven. We're finishing up this morning our. Uh, our Advent series and looking at various Old Testament minor prophets, seeing how God prepared his people for the coming of Christ. So even as we're getting ready for, uh, for this week, how did God get his people ready uh, through these Old Testament prophets? This morning we come to the final one, the prophet Hosea. Hosea ministered right about the same time as Micah and Jonah. Now, this is the days before the exile. And we'll, we'll see how God, God predicts that exile even in our, in our passage. Uh, you might know, if you know something about the book of Hosea, you might uh, think about that picture that God uses there of comparing his relationship with his people Israel as a, as a relationship of a, a husband to a wife. Uh, well, in this passage, we get a different family picture as God compares his relationship with his people to that of a father to a son. So let's read that together and and see how this gets us ready for Jesus. Uh, we're beginning with reading God's word, Hosea 11, 1 to 11. When I was a child, again, this is God speaking, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burnt offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, and but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but, Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, and consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. Though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give up, O Ephraim? Give you up, O Ephraim? And how can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. And I, will and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, use your word and to work in our hearts to show us the glory of what you have done in your Son. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by returning to a question we just tossed out last week. Uh, but it's a good one to return to. We ask this question, have you ever wondered what God thought of you? Have you ever wondered how God felt about you? 
right here, right now. God looks down from heaven. He sees you, individual you. How does God think about you? How does he feel about you? Do you ever just get this feeling that he's surely he's annoyed with me? Surely he's frustrated, disappointed, shaking his head. Maybe those kinds of thoughts come to you as, as you approach the Lord's Supper. We often think about, about how God uh, thinks about us or feels about us at times like this. You know, they have a sense of coming to the Lord's table and being in the presence of God. And there's those quiet moments. And, and maybe your heart goes to a question like that and has some of those, yeah, he's not happy to see me. Um, maybe it's it's wrestling with hard questions. Maybe you were here last weekend and you really wrestled with our study of Jonah as we, we talked about our temptation to, to run from God. And maybe you were convicted. Yeah, I, I think I'm running from God in many ways. And may, maybe that, that leads you to think, man, God is just fed up with me. He's done. Uh, or maybe maybe it's the holiday season, that, that to so many it's joy, it's happiness, but maybe to you it just doesn't feel happy at all. It just feels kind of depressing, difficult, hardship. And it leads you to think, with all this mess around me, surely God is not happy. That's why I feel this way. How does God feel, think about you? Well, we come to the book of Hosea. Hosea is the Old Testament book that probably gives us one of the most warm and tender pictures of God's love for his people. But he gives these pictures of his warmth and his compassionate love for his people right in the midst of challenging them on their sin. Right in the midst of talking about himself as a holy God who even judges sin, even their sin. And so we're kind of left wondering, how does this fit together? Uh, how does God have this warm, tender, compassionate love for his people and yet see and understand their ugly sin and hate that and even, even has to judge sin? Of course, that's the question we have. How could God look down at me and see that I'm really sinning in real ways and how could his love fit together with his holiness and the reality of my sin? How do those things fit together? That's really the, uh, the, the question that Hosea wrestles with and, and that we want to wrestle with. Well, let's look through the, look through the passage, beginning, and we'll work through three points together, uh, beginning with verses 1 to 4 and talking about a father's love and his son's rebellion. So verses 1 to 4, all of this is God addressing his people. And what God, as he's addressing his old covenant people, Israel, here, uh, in verses 1 to 4, he's recounting past history. He's recounting the history that goes all the way back to the days of Moses. The days of, of God's people being enslaved in Egypt and God rescuing them out of slavery. Uh, and, and, and he uses, in the midst of that, recalling that history, he addresses his people, Israel, by calling them his son. And, and that language is also as old as Moses. Uh, you go back to Exodus chapter 4, when God calls Moses to go to, to, to Egypt, to go to Pharaoh. Here's what he tells Moses to tell to Pharaoh. He says, uh, tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. So all the way back, there's Moses 
God represents himself as father and Israel, the people, as his son. And here's Hosea, uh, hundreds of years later, recalling that history. God recalls that history with the same language. Verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Right? God's reminding his people of, of this, this love that went all the way back to the early days of the nation when they were enslaved and God loved them. And yeah, like a father loving his son. And he, he shows that love by calling them out of Egypt, rescuing them out of, out of slavery. And throughout this, these early verses, you see this, these expressions of fatherly love. Verse 3. Uh, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to, uh, to walk. Ephraim, there is a, a synonym for the northern kingdom of Israel. So again, talking about God's people. He says, I taught them to walk, right? Like a father teaches a son. Uh, I took them up by their arms, right? God's tender, tangible love and care. Uh, verse 4 speaks of God's uh, leading his people with cords of kindness, bands of love. I bent down and fed them. Right? Recalling history, maybe even some of the details you could connect with what we know of those, that, those days of Moses. God leading his people in the wilderness. Uh, God feeding them. Remember, day after day, he fed them manna uh, to care for them. His, his tender, uh, passionate, uh, loving, strong uh, care and love for his people. Uh, the Father, the Heavenly Father, loving Israel, his son, uh, God's people. Providing, leading, loving so he reminds his son Israel in the days of Hosea, remember this history I've had with you. But then he reminds them of something else. Well, maybe let's push pause there for a second and, and kind of bring ourselves into the story. Uh, because because uh, we're, we're in this too. Israel is, is so much a picture of who we are, even up to this point. Can you look back on your history and see God's God's loving, fatherly, tender care for you. Can you go all the way back and say, yeah, there was God. He was leading. He was caring. He was providing for me. Right? This reminds us of us. Okay. Uh, then how does Israel respond? So God reminds them of all he's done, uh, the father caring for his son and bring them out of Egypt. But how does Israel respond? Well, uh, sadly, they don't respond with love and kind. Instead, they rebel. So you get verse 1, Out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, and to burn offerings to idols. Or at the end of verse 3, I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. Right. So down through the generations, God uh, leading, caring for, God, for his people. But how does Israel respond? They respond by running from God. Uh, by, by, by worshiping false gods, by not even acknowledging that it was he who was God, the, God, the Lord himself, who rescued them. Right? Maybe we even think about the details of, of that time in the wilderness. Right? God leads them out of Egypt, and they immediately start complaining, ah, there's no food. Uh, or, or Moses goes up on the mountain, and immediately they start worshiping a golden calf. Uh, or they go even further, and they're worshiping the gods of the nations. Right? Here, here's God recalling that history. Right? I brought you up, my son, out of Egypt, but the more I called you, the more you ran. That's Israel's history. Again, we can kind of bring ourselves into the story. Uh, is, isn't this us 
often. God's care and kindness towards us, and yet, and yet we respond um, not by loving God with all our hearts, but by running from him. Uh, the very God who cares for us. Uh, one, one theologian loved to tell the story of, of sitting on a train uh, and, and seeing there on, on the train a, a father, and on the father's lap was his daughter, and the daughter sitting on his father's lap uh, looked up at the father and slapped the father in the face. And the theologian said, yeah, that's us. Right? The, very, the very father who holds us up, even at the very moment he's holding us up, uh, we, we, in our sin, respond by rebelling against him. Right? That was Israel's history. Let's be honest, that's our, that's our history. Maybe that's the very kind of thought process, and knowing taking that seriously is what has you thinking, yeah, that's why God's really annoyed at me right now. That's why he's really frustrated at me right now. Okay, well, let's keep going. So we go from a father's love and a son's rebellion to our second point, a father's judgment and his compassion. So then we go to verses 5 to 7. Uh, after recalling their history, God's love for his son Israel and their rebellion, verses 5 to 7, God promises he's going to bring judgment on their sin. So verse 6, the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. God promises uh, that he's going to bring judgment in the form of the sword, something many, if not most, of the prophets uh, predict that God's going to use the enemy nations and their armies uh, to bring his judgment on the people of Israel. It's going to be a conquering, even in exiling. God's going to cast his people out of the land in judgment for their sin. One of the, the, the covenant curses that God had warned them about, it's going to come as these enemy nations come in and you're going to be kicked out of the land. Uh, which is reflected in verse 5 as he talks about God's people uh, being taken off to Assyria. Uh, the, first, the first section of that verse 5, uh, well, if you had your ESV actual Bible in front of you, you would see that uh, in verse 5 there's actually a footnote there uh, on the word not, uh, right? Verse 5, they shall not return to the land of Egypt. Uh, in the ESV Bible, there's a footnote that says at the bottom, uh, it could also be translated, surely. The ESV translator is saying there's good reason in the Hebrew, and, even, and especially in the context of that Hebrew, that it's not, they shall not return to Egypt, but they shall surely return to Egypt. Uh, or as the NIV puts it, uh, shall they not return to Egypt? Uh, shall you not return to Egypt? Which makes sense much more in the context. Uh, if you're really following, Egypt is a big deal in this passage. Right, it started, God says, oh yeah, back in the days of Moses, I brought you out of Egypt. Yeah, it actually ends with Egypt. Verse 11, uh, God says uh, that uh, in verse 11, his people are going to come back out of Egypt. So you kind of put the geography, you kind of put it all together. Okay, they came out of Egypt the days of Moses, and then the prophet predicting that in a future time, they're going to come out of Egypt again, which meant somewhere in between they went back to Egypt. Uh, which is probably what verse 5 is, is talking about here. Um, uh, but but the, the main point, which is exactly what happened, honestly, in, in the Babylonian exile, in the Assyrian exile, some of God's people ended up in Egypt. The prophet Jeremiah is an example. You might know Jeremiah, after the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem, ended up in Egypt. 
the point here is, is God bringing his, his judgment upon the people. Uh, because of their sin, because of their rebellion, he kicks them out of the land uh, the, the, and conquers them through foreign, foreign armies. It's what their sin deserves. It's a picture of what our sin deserves. Right? We bring ourselves again into the story. Uh, we've rebelled against God. He's been kind to us. We rebel against him. And what that sin deserves is, is God's wrath and curse. That we're the ones who deserve to be kicked out of God's presence uh, for our sin. But then God immediately, he warns that this judgment is coming, but then he quickly follows it up with verses 8 to 11, where he talks about his compassion welling up within him. Right? Uh, his love is going to keep him from pouring out the full measure of his wrath and completely destroying his people. So verse 8, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma, treat you like Zeboyim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Uh, we said Ephraim, that's language referring to Israel. Uh, Adma and Zeboim, those are, uh, those are small cities that are right around Sodom and Gomorrah. And so when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, completely, utterly wiped out, Adma and Zeboim were wiped out as well. So God's saying, I'm not going to completely wipe you out. Right? Just like uh, because, my, because my, my compassion wells up within me, I'm going to show mercy. Uh, God's, God's love for them. Uh, in fact, he tells verses 10 to 11 what that's going to look like in an even more distant future. So there is going to be this judgment of the exile. But God says, my compassion, my, my love so takes hold of me. It's not going to be a complete and total judgment. In fact, here's what it's going to look like, verses 10 and 11. And there it talks about in an even more future day, God's going to call his people back into the land. Right? Back from Assyria, back from Egypt. They're going to come back into, into his presence. And that's actually exactly what happens. A partial fulfillment takes place in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah as, as some of God's people are brought back. But it's just some of them. It's not incredibly impressive. And, and in those post-exile days, some of the prophets are saying, yeah, look for something even better, an even greater deliverance from exile. Um, this tension... You're starting to see it. Hosea is really wrestling with it here. This, this loving father, but yet a rebellious son. This father who, who must judge sin, because sin is ugly, but yet a father who, who shows compassion and mercy and his warm, tender, uh, rescuing love for his people. There's that tension. And of course, it's not just a tension for Old Testament Israel. It's, it's the big question that we wrestle with. It's really at the heart of us thinking about God. Man, he's got to be annoyed with me. Well, because there's a the part of us that knows God hates sin. But yet we're, we're told here, uh, and we know from Scripture, that God, God loves his people. So how can God look down at me and love me uh, and, and be delighted in me, and yet here's this sin? How, how's that work together? Well, that brings us to our final point. It brings us to where the story of the scripture goes, which is a father's rescue through his greater son. So this morning in our scripture reading, uh, we read from Matthew. 
Matthew, that familiar story, the birth of Jesus takes place, and there, there are these wise men, these magi from the east, and they make this long journey to Jerusalem to worship the king who was born. Uh, and, of course, Herod finds out about it, the current earthly king in Jerusalem, and he's not happy at all. He wants to destroy, kill uh, the, the, the young Jesus. But you remember how God delivers Jesus and Mary and Joseph and they, Joseph gets this dream, and what does the what does the angel tell Joseph? Take Mary, take J the the child Jesus, go to Egypt, stay there until Herod dies, uh, and then then you can come back into the land. And Matthew explains what's going on there with with the final verse that we read, verse fifteen. It's just just right at the uh, end of the, the passage there at the top of page three there. And Matthew explains, here's what's going on. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. That's what we just read in Hosea 11. But maybe, having just studied that, those verses, it has a scratching our head. But hold it, we just said that Hosea 11, out of Egypt I called my son, uh, that's talking about what happened in the past. Uh, that, the, that the son was God's people, Israel, in the days of Moses. Now all of a sudden, Matthew is talking about this having to do with Jesus. Did, did Matthew just not pay attention to his Bible and just kind of completely misreading it? Uh, some scholars actually say that. Uh, Matthew just kind of completely messing things up. Or that he's just twisting scripture for his own purpose and somehow that's okay through the Holy Spirit. But actually, God is doing something far more powerful. Uh, something reflected and predicted in the rest of Scripture, but now it's coming to pass. Uh, God is, is using this to show what his salvation is really all about, how it is that he rescues, how it is that a compassionate father can rescue a rebellious son. And here is how he does it. Here is how God is going to save his people from, his, from their sins. You might remember, that's how Matthew introduces Jesus We'll read it tonight. Uh, the angel comes to, to Joseph saying, you got to name him Jesus. Why? Why name him Jesus? For he will save his people from their sins. And then you go to the very next passage, and it is this one uh, that we read about the wise men. This is how God saves his people from their sins. Because you have this son Jesus who goes to Egypt and comes out of Egypt. And if you keep reading in Matthew, you start to see the picture emerging. Uh, what, what Matthew's gospel portrays, and the other gospels reflect as well, is that the life of Jesus, uh, the, the history, life story of Jesus, remarkably mirrors the story of Israel, the history of Israel. Jesus is, as it were, replaying it, uh, rehearsing it, walking the same path. Think about it. Uh, can, you put, can you put the history of Old Testament Israel and the history of Jesus kind of side by side for a minute? So both of them are called God's beloved son, right? God's beloved son, Israel. God's beloved son, Jesus. Uh, both called God's beloved son. Both are forced to leave Canaan and go to Egypt to survive. Uh, both are then called out of Egypt uh, both are then uh, wandering through the wilderness, Israel for 40 years, 
Jesus for 40 days. Uh, in the wilderness, you might remember, God's people are tempted. Uh, and then you have Jesus in the wilderness for 40 years, 40 days, and he is tempted as well by some of the very same temptations that Israel wrestled with. Are you going to complain about food? Are you going to bow down to false gods? That was Israel in the wilderness. Oh, sure enough, here's Jesus, same uh, kind of period of time in the wilderness after being brought out of Egypt, and he's tempted with the same exact temptations. So what you have in the coming of Jesus is, is Jesus, as it were, replaying this, this story of Israel. Uh, and, and Matthew seems to be pointing it out here. Are you paying attention? Are you looking? Here it is. Uh, this is to fulfill. Out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus is replaying this history. Only, of course, there is one remarkable, striking, overwhelming difference between God's son Israel and God's son Jesus. Jesus does it perfectly. Everywhere where Israel rebels, sins, disobeys, ignores, Jesus succeeds, is faithful, honors, and obeys his Father. Right? You can even think of those days in the wilderness uh, where, where Israel is tempted by a lack of food and, oh, they're complaining. Right? God hates us. He wants to kill us. And there's Jesus, faithful uh, to, his, to trust his Father's plan. Uh, there's Israel in the wilderness. Uh, they're, they're immediately running after golden calf. We'll worship that. Uh, there's the gods of the nations. We'll run after them. But there's Jesus, tempted to bow down to Satan, and he refuses. Right? So the same history being replayed, only this son, who we know is the eternal son, this son does it perfectly. Succeeds in every individual place where God's people failed. And that's exactly the point. Uh, he's replaying it, but replaying it perfectly, so that at the end of the story, this beloved son will die. This beloved son will, will be on the cross, cursed of God. Why, why, why the beloved son who's, with whom the father is well pleased? Remember, that's God's verdict on, on this son, Jesus. My beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Kind of different than Hosea where God says, my beloved son, but I'm not exactly pleased with what you've been doing. That's kind of Hosea 11. Here's Jesus, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And yet Jesus, the son, ends up cursed of God. Yeah, because... He's bearing our sin. He's bearing the sin of his people uh, so that he can give us his perfect record. Uh, what, what's, so that what's true of us can go on him. He takes our sin. What's true of him can go on us. We get his perfect righteousness. This is how God saves us from uh, our, our sins. He brings forth a, a spotless Savior, one who, one who is the Son, who lives the righteous life, uh, and then dies that, that death in our place, so that what's his can become ours. It's the very thing uh, that we'll get to rehearse and, and remind ourselves what, with in the Lord's Supper. I encourage you to think about that as, as, we, as we partake the supper together. Remember, okay, of course, we have these elements. They're, uh, they're, they're signs, symbols of, 
of Christ's body and blood. So they're, they're symbols of somebody who died. But remember, as you take it, it's not just anybody who died. Right? The body that was broken was the perfect son. The body of the perfect son being symbolized here. The blood that was poured out, poured out, not just any blood, not just any death, but the blood that was poured out was the, the blood of the righteous son. Right? Exactly what we're not, he is, and yet he dies, bearing our sin, so that what is his can then become ours. And again, we get to act that out too. Think of it. Uh, those things that represent Jesus are handed to you. And you take them, and you take them in. They, they quite literally become part of you as you eat them. This powerful picture of what, what belongs to Jesus is now yours. His perfect righteousness, uh, his perfect record, your sin having been dealt with at the cross, his perfect record is now yours. This, this record of this, this beloved, well-pleasing son is is now yours. And you, you can think about that and realize that, that if you're trusting in Christ, this is you, as you, oh yeah, what was Christ's is mine. This is, this is the answer to the question. You wonder, oh man, how does God think about me? Well, if you're in Christ, you don't have to wonder. Uh, you can be confident and assured that God is delighted. That God loves you. That God is well pleased because you're perfect? Because you had a great week? No, no, nor did I. No, we're, we're, we're sinners, and we know that. But, but what we see represented here is what Christ did, how, how, he, how he accomplishes it and solves it. Christ took the punishment. What was Christ's is now ours, so that God looks at us, and, and his delight is the same delight he has in his, his perfect son, Jesus. Right? He looks at us and sees Christ's perfect record, sees Christ's perfect accomplishment, and, and there's, that, there's that love, there's that delight, there's that, that joy. There's a real sense in which you're, if you're in Christ, you can see what, you can hear God saying in the pictures this morning, as the elements are handed to you and you take them in, right? What's Christ's is yours. You can, you can hear in the midst of that, God saying to you, believer, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You are my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. Why? I, you know you're a sinner. Yeah, but what was Christ is now yours. And so that's, that's the verdict on your life. Uh, that, that's God in your life. And that's the great joy, our great hope, uh, our great delight. Uh, do you believe it? It's life. Do you trust it? It's true. Uh, is, it, is, is it your joy? It'll give peace. Well, let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would remind us afresh of the great things that you have done through your Son. How, Lord, his coming is truly good news that he came to save his people from their sins, even us, even through his perfect life and his death in our place. Lord, encourage us with that good news, even, even through that good news that's proclaimed in your word and now the good news that's pictured in the supper. We pray.
pray in his name. Amen.